you're able, please, please stand with me, remain standing, and turn to John chapter 2, where we continue our sermons from the gospel according to John, given to us, of course, by God the Holy Spirit, and uh, we'll read verses 13 through 22, that will be our text for this morning. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem, and he found in the temple those who sold oxen and sheep and doves and the money changers doing business. When he had made a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen and poured out the changers' money and overturned the tables. And he said to those who sold doves, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of merchandise. Then his disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house has eaten me up. So the Jews answered and said to him, What sign do you show us since you do these things? Jesus answered and said to them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple. And will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking of the temple of his body. Therefore, when he had risen from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this to them. And they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had said. Let's pray. Father, we do pray that by your spirit you would teach us the truths contained here in your word. Convict us of our sins. Encourage us in Christ and help us to follow him to give you honor and glory. We pray in his name. Amen. You may be seated. In my library, I have a signed copy of Louis Burkhoff's Systematic Theology. Not signed by Louis Burkhoff. Signed by my pastor who gave it to me at the time. And that was nearly 30 years ago. And I mention that because the reason my pastor gave me that book was uh, for my assistance at our church's book table. Um, Right outside of the sanctuary, we had this table where you could buy, you know, these wonderful books by the Puritans and things like that. And we were a reforming church and a Baptist church. And um, at some point, I remember a church member coming to me and saying or asking the question, should you be doing that? Should you be selling these books right here in the church of God? And uh, the reason that person asked me that was because of this passage here in John chapter 2. Is it right to sell books, Christian literature, um, in that context? Or to put it another way, is it wrong? And uh, now to that I would say not so much. Because it was a ministry of the church and they were trying to sell these items at cost. And as we will see, that is not what was happening here uh, in John chapter 2. Last time we were in John's gospel, we saw the wedding at Cana where John tells us that Jesus turned water into wine. And now we come to this portion where we see Jesus cleansing the temple. Uh, Jesus actually did this twice in his ministry, once here at the beginning, and as Matthew records it, once later in his ministry, before his crucifixion. And so we come to the first recorded uh, cleansing of the temple in his own ministry. And so what I I want us to do is walk through this text 
to examine what he saw, what he did, and what he said. And uh, in light of that, we'll make several applications. So what was it that Jesus saw when he went to the temple? Well, if you look there at verse 1, John tells us, Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand. So it was the time of the Jewish Passover, that Old Testament festival given to God's people by God himself uh, as a remembrance of what God had done when he delivered his people from the angel of death through the blood of the Lamb. And that's recorded in Exodus chapter 12. And so it was through the death and the shed blood of this Lamb that God's people escaped death and therefore got to live. And so it was the Passover, the celebration of that. And and historians tell us that happened either late March or mid-April, once a year. And uh, some say that there were as many to the tune of a million Jewish people who had come. It was mandated for all of the male Jews of Israel to attend this once per year. And remember that uh, prior to this time of Jesus' cleansing of the temple, the Jews had been dispersed. Uh, throughout Asia Minor and perhaps other regions. So they traveled, they made their journey to Jerusalem at this time of the year. And so many Jews were there, even Josephus tells us that the Romans became a little nervous because of all the Jewish people in Jerusalem at this time. So the inns were full, there were many people everywhere, and uh, there was a bustle in Jerusalem at this time. And so at the festival which lasted about seven days, I think it was, there were these sacrifices that were made, and God's people were called, according to their own wealth or poverty, to offer certain sacrifice. Remember in Leviticus, I think it may be chapter 11, for the poor, they were to offer turtle doves, you know, a bird, and uh, that wouldn't cost them very much, and even God's people who were without means could sacrifice and worship the Lord. Others were to offer a lamb uh, or some sort of four-footed uh, animal without spot or blemish. And so that's the context there. And of course, on the actual day of atonement, uh, the Passover lamb would be offered somewhere, I think, between 3 and 6 p.m. And uh, God's people would um, keep the Passover. They would eat the Passover meal and fellowship in that way. So it was at the time of the Jewish Passover John tells us here. And it was Jesus' tradition, just uh, as we've already seen and will see, to worship God and to attend the Passover. And so he goes to the temple. And in verse 14 it says, He found in the temple those who sold oxen and sheep and doves and the money changers doing business. And uh, well, what's going on here? Why were they doing that? Well, um, we see that the house of worship was transformed into a business. Really, that's what's happening in this text and what had happened before Jesus visited the temple at this time. And uh, perhaps it was at the beginning a matter of convenience for God's people, but others saw this as a business opportunity and they took advantage of it. Imagine if you travel a long distance on foot uh, or caravan and uh, you brought your sacrifice with you, uh, perhaps something would happen to it on the way, or you take it all this distance and you are there before the temple and your sacrifice is being inspected and 
And nope, this one has a spot, it has a blemish. You know what I mean? So you've, you've taken care of that animal along this way for no reason at all. And so what happened is there were those who would bring their cattle <clears throat> or various animals and make them available for God's people who traveled all this way. And they would purchase them and then offer them as a sacrifice. And we can question that practice, but that's what had happened. But in addition to that, the problem was exacerbated by the money changers. Uh, because there were different types of coins in circulation at this time, foreign coins to, to the Jewish people. And uh, there was the Greek coins, the Egyptian coins, those from Tyre. And of course, these were foreign, and they were seen as unclean. They were not suitable to be received by those working at the temple. And so they had to make uh, an exchange. And if they didn't have a Jewish coin, they had to purchase Jewish coins. Well, guess what? There was an exchange rate. You know, the one time I got to go out of the country in 2008, I got to go to Scotland. I got to go to England. And I got to see some really neat places. I got to go to the home office of Banner of Truth, if you know what that is. And, and I thought, wow, I'm buying all the... I got to meet Ian Murray... And I bought all these books and I, you know, packed them in my suitcase because I got such a great deal. And when I got home, I, I said, what? I got the bill. Because of the exchange rate, I could have just bought them and ordered them from, you know, Philadelphia for the same price, probably. But as what we see here, as with that, um, they were making a crazy amount of money. Um, the rate to exchange currency was two shekels, a day's wage. Perhaps some would tell us perhaps it was two days wage. And the end result was that if someone wanted to buy a dove, you know, that sacrifice for the poor, which I guess in our day would be about five cents, it would end up costing four dollars. And so the money changers, too, who had to pay a commission, who got paid a commission, but also had to pay a fee to the local political authorities, they were making lots of money. And so, what happened? Well, if you look there in verse 15, it says, when he, Jesus, made a whip of cords. Let's stop right there. Jesus made this whip of cords. He made it himself. And what does he do? It says he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen and poured out the changers' money and overturned the tables. And so the question is, perhaps for you, well, did Jesus actually whip these people? And we aren't told that he did. I've looked at this in the Greek and looked at the corresponding um, verbiage there, and, and it really is hard to tell. But it does say that he drove them out he caused such a ruckus that uh, as he drove out the animals, he also drove out those who kept them, and it says the money changers. And of course, he turned over the tables, these little tables where they exchanged the money. You can just imagine coins hitting the floor, rolling everywhere. And then in verse 16, he said to those who sold doves, let's stop right there. I've already told you the significance of the doves. It was for the poor. And perhaps this was a little personal for Jesus. Why do I say that? 
Because in Luke 2.24, we find that his parents, Joseph and Mary, being poor, were to offer doves to the Lord. And so Jesus, he does care for the poor. And he does care for all of God's people that were being taken advantage of here as, as we see. And so he says in verse 16, take these things away. Take these doves away. Do not make my father's house a house of merchandise. Don't make it the marketplace. The place where you do business. And so uh, often it is noted that we see here Jesus' righteous indignation. His righteous anger. You know, the question might be for some, is it permissible for Christians to be angry? And I've had one pastor to say, not one of my own pastors, but fellow pastor to say, well, all anger is sinful anger. And that's an easy way to deal with it, right? But we see here Jesus in sinless anger. The wrath of God is an attribute of God. And I think anger is a communicable attribute. It is an attribute shared by, by God and mankind. And yet the, 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 the question is, are we ever righteously angry? Probably not. And so the Bible warns us, it quotes Psalm 4 and verse 4 in Ephesians 4.26. And it says, be angry in what? Sin not. When you are angry, do not sin in your anger. And so Jesus, he didn't take these doves and throw them out of the, the temple. No. He said, take them out. And so even in his anger, he was controlled. He had self-control. And he was perfectly righteous in his own anger. We could say this was a controlled, godly exercise of strong rebuke. The closest thing I can find in Scripture to this is the Apostle Paul in Acts 17, and I think it's verse yeah, 16. There he is, he's in Athens, and he sees that the city is given to idols, and it says, Luke tells us there, he became provoked within his spirit. He became angry, upset. And so what did he do? Take the idols and start smashing them? You know, he started the iconoclastic revolution now. What he did is he started reasoning with them. He started preaching to them at the Areopagus. And that's what Paul did. So he took that anger and he did something about it. He did something righteous with it. And so when we become angry, it's because we perceive an injustice. So what do we do with that anger? How do we respond to that anger? That's the question. We try to make things right. But if we don't do the right thing in the right way, guess what? That's sin. If we don't do it for the right reason, it's sin as well. We have to do it for the glory of God. And so Jesus here, he goes in and he cleanses the temple. And uh, that's what he did. And so what he says there in verse 16, I've already noted it. Take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of merchandise. Then his disciples, verse 17, remembered what was written, or that it was written, zeal for your house has eaten me up. This is a quote from Psalm 69 and verse 9. It is a psalm of David. 
where he's talking about his interaction with the enemies of God, his own enemies. They treat him unfairly, unjustly, even though he's righteous. And he talks about the zeal of God and the zeal for God's house overtaking him, eating him up, devouring him. And so here it says the zeal, that which is his passion, his devotion, even having a godly jealousy. You know, God is jealous for his worship. He is a jealous God. And he says, there will be none besides me who will be worshipped. And uh, the disciples here remember what is written in Psalm 69. Zeal for your house, the house of God, the temple of God, where God comes down in his Shekinah glory and meets with his people, where his people pray, they hear his word, and they meet with and worship the living and true God. And this zeal has eaten him up. So, in verse 18, the Jews answered and said to him, What sign do you show us since you do these things? Here again, Jesus has to flash his badge and say, I am the Messiah, uh, as it were. And they say, What sign? Well, notice what sign he mentions. Verse 19, Jesus answered and said to them, Destroy this temple. And in three days, I will raise it up. So they obviously, after reading the text, they obviously think he's talking about this physical temple. Remember, this was the second temple of the Jews. The first one had been destroyed um, hundreds of years earlier. And this was the Herodian temple. It was started by Herod in 20 B.C., And uh, this is roughly the year A.D. 27. Some say that there is still temple work being done. But at this point it had been 46 years since it began. Since its beginning. And so they misunderstand. And, And by the way, if Jesus wanted to do that, of course he could do it. He's God. He's the God man. God is the one who speaks things into existence in Genesis 1. He is the one who raises the dead. He has already turned water to wine. Why couldn't he? If they destroyed the temple, rebuild it in one day if he wanted to. But that's not what he was talking about. So he is talking about his own body. In verse 20, they say, you know, will you do this? Will you raise it up in three days? Verse 21. But he was speaking of the temple of his body. And so John gives us commentary. He lets us know, his readers, what it is that Jesus was talking about. His own flesh. And so the sign then is his resurrection from the dead. And oddly enough, ironically I should say enough, these Jewish people would be the ones who would kill him and bring about the sign of Jesus' resurrection. The sign of Jonah, he'll say later. Jonah was in the mouth of the whale, the fish, for three days, and uh, Jesus was in the mouth of the earth for three days. He was raised on the third day. And so speaking of his physical resurrection from the dead. There is so much that hinges on the reality of the resurrection of Christ that Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, we are doomed without it. If the resurrection of Jesus didn't happen, he says, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow you die. 
He says, if Jesus is not risen from the dead, you're still in your sins. And in Acts 17, I think it's verse 26, somewhere around there, the Apostle Paul says there's a day of judgment coming. And God has manifested and shown men that this day of judgment is coming because he's going to judge men through Jesus Christ. And he's given testimony of this through his resurrection from the dead. So this is the sign of all signs. And so that's what Jesus tells them. Now this would be in the future for them. Jesus' time had not yet come. And Jesus in one way speaks as it were in a parable. They don't understand. They're bewildered. And uh, just, well, at the time of his suffering, his accusers would come forward in Matthew 26, 61 and falsely accuse him of threatening to tear down the Jewish temple. And also, while he was hanging on the cross, they mocked him, saying, in Matthew 27, 40, you who say you're going to rebuild the temple in three days, you know, deliver yourself from the cross. And so he was mocked because of these words. They took his words out of context, as we read in the gospel. So if you see there, in verse 22, John also notes for us, therefore, when he had risen from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this to them. And they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had said. I think for the disciples, their faith was something of a process during the earthly ministry of Christ. They were in the school of Christ. And after his resurrection, you know, there he is in Luke 24 on the road to Emmaus. And he's showing his disciples how the Christ must come and suffer and he shows them through the book of Moses, beginning at Moses. And of course, there's the day of Pentecost when he pours out his spirit. And then Peter stands up and, and he speaks boldly. He has confidence in the spirit. He has the truth of the spirit and the word of God. And John notes that they remember what he said. That's important for us to note as well. And so as we talk about this and think about it, let me just... Give four areas of application. First of all, we ought to see here that as the people of God, we need to have a zeal for the worship of God. Um, it says that they remembered the psalm. Psalm 69 and verse 17. Zeal for your house has eaten me up. This has overtaken Jesus. This was his passion. And he says, don't make my father's house a house of merchandise. Elsewhere, he says, my, my father's house, which is a house of prayer. And prayer is a part for the whole. It is the worship of God. God does care how we worship him. The manner of worship. We ought to have a zeal for that. Some people might think, and, and ignorantly so, well-meaning people, Christians, might think God doesn't care how we worship just as long as we do it. We'll tell that to Nadab and Abihu in Leviticus chapter 10. They offered strange fire. That means a fire, an offering that God had not commanded. And what happened? God killed him. You say, that's harsh. Well, I remind you, the wages of sin is what? Death. 
So the fact that we sin daily in thought, word, and deed and still get to live another day is God's mercy. But second, going back, I think God was making an example of them. It was the beginning of the Levitical priesthood. And also, in ordering His own worship, God was teaching His people how they might approach Him. Those sacrifices symbolized what? Jesus. His person and His work. The only way you may come to the living God and have fellowship and communion with Him and live eternally and worship is through Jesus. And so that's why it was so important that they got that right. And so, yes, it does matter how we worship God. We talk about, uh, if you want to put it this way, one of my professors in seminary, Dr. Wilborn, talked about that Presbyterian verse. There are a few of those in Scripture. 1 Corinthians 14, 40. Let everything be done decently and in order. There is chaos at court. People are standing up here. People are standing up here saying this, doing that. Paul says, no, no. We need to get order back into the worship of God. And as far as the manner of worship, this is one of the great fruits of the Protestant Reformation. Because God's worship had been corrupted terribly. Because there was an ignorance and a famine of God's word. And uh, perhaps you know the story of Jenny Geddes, a, a lady Scotsman in the 1600s. And there she was in her church, a reformed church. And uh, the, the minister came in and he started to go by the uh, Book of Common Prayer. The Book of Common Prayer and enforce the rights of the Church of England upon the Scottish people. And uh, you need to know that in those days um, there weren't you know, padded pews or seats and often people brought their own stools and Jenny Geddes, she would bring her own milk, milking stool to church. So she was sitting on her wooden milking stool and she heard uh, the rites and the words of the mass being recited by this minister and she says, I'm not going to say in a Scottish accent because I can't, but she says, dare you recite the mass in my ear? She stood up, took her stool and threw it at the minister. Now, that's probably a wrong application of what Jesus does here, right? But she was passionate about the worship of God. I'll give her that. What about monopolizing God's worship? I, I really didn't mention this in the text, but this, this whole buzz of business going on that Jesus sees, it was at the temple, it was in the temple, but it was in the court of the Gentiles. History tells us that. It happened in the court of of the Gentiles. And so imagine, there you are trying to worship God. You've traveled. You want to become part of the people of God. You're not born into the church. You're a Gentile convert. There you are. You want to pray. And you have the bleeding of the sheep. You have the stench of the, the smell of all the animals. You have people wheeling and dealing, perhaps calling out saying, hey, come over here this way. And uh, this is my price. They're haggling. And there you are trying to worship God and pray. Would that be a barrier to worship? Absolutely. And, uh, you know, while we in Reformed churches, we love, most of us, I would say, love to get our, or our worship in order, are we barring unbelievers from worship? And I'm not saying that worship is to be full of unbelievers. But are we reaching out to them? That's the question. Do we see them like Jesus sees them in John 4? You know, God is seeking those who will worship Him. 
in spirit and in truth. God is seeking worshipers. So evangelism is unto that end that people become worshipers of the living and true God. And so they might worship him in spirit from the heart, a heart renewed by the spirit of God and in truth, according to his truth, according to his word. Think about a zeal for worship. Um, There are those who have, if not come close to what is going on here, have done the same thing. They've seen the church and they've seen worship. They've seen Christians as an opportunity to make money. So there there to be indulgences um, in the 1500s in the Roman Catholic Church, indulgences which were used to fund the erection and building of St. Basilica. I think it was St. Peter's. Yeah. There are those who would say, if you just sow a seed of faith, if you send me $1,000, God's going to bless you tenfold and give you $10,000. There's that. Why are Christians sometimes so vulnerable and why do they write checks to such people? Ignorance, I think, is one reason. And also because Christians are a trusting people. Because we're trusting, we also have to be discerning and know the Word of God. Not everything that is constituted as worship according to men is worship according to God. Jesus teaches that in Matthew 15. You know, you've made your traditions the worship of God, basically. And then, of course, how about our attendance when we think about zeal and the worship of God? I'm preaching to the choir. You're here this morning. But do we have a zeal, a passion? Is it your passion during the week to be thinking about worship, which is coming on the Lord's Day? In the Old Testament, God's people were to prepare for it. They, they were to get in the wilderness twice as much manna on Saturday, so they had enough for Sunday, so they didn't have to be preoccupied with that. Do we set aside our worldly business? Are we ready or do we do, we do things at the last minute? Do we come in tired, exhausted because we haven't prepared? And therefore it affects our mental capacity. We can't hear. You know, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. So I know I'm stepping on toes perhaps and stepping on my own at times. But we have to prepare. Um, And when you think about it too, our passion for worship, our desire for worship really is a spiritual barometer. Because in Romans 8, right, God uses all things to work together for the good to them that are the call. Um, And then he goes on and he says, for whom he predestined, he conforms unto the image of Christ. And so God uses everything in our lives. He sanctifies us. He molds us and shapes us to be more like Jesus Christ. And one of the things about Jesus Christ that we can say in this text is he had a passion and a zeal for the worship of his heavenly Father, the living and true God. And so, some people think we're probably a little crazy. We have two services at least twice a month. You know, I can remember in my day, 30 years ago, um, the town where I went to high school and where I worshipped, there was a church in town that caused great controversy because on Super Bowl Sunday, instead of worshipping that night, they had a Super Bowl party. That was a controversy. For two reasons. You had a Super Bowl party on Sunday and you canceled your evening service. 
And now if we worship God once on the Lord's Day, that's seen as a good thing. And it is good. It is good. Matthew Henry put it like this. He said, zeal for the house of God forbids us to consult our own credit, ease, and safety when they come in competition with our duty in Christian service. And so we need a zeal for the worship of God. Second, quickly, we need an open eye for reformation in our own lives and also in the life of the church. And I say that because Jesus here obviously sees a need for reformation. You know, we talk about always reforming, semper reformanda, reformanda. And uh, that doesn't mean always changing for change's sake. There are things that are handed down to us. They come from the Bible. They're traditions, but they're biblical and apostolic tradition. We keep those. But we need to be examining our own hearts and our own lives and to see where sanctification is is needed. And uh, you might ask, well, does Jesus cleanse the temple today? Well, we are the temple of God. 1 Corinthians 3, 1 Corinthians 6, and Jesus cleanses His temple. How does He do that? By His Word and His Spirit. It's called sanctification. And so number three, then we see the work of the Holy Spirit, I think, in this passage. I mean, that's the difference between His disciples here and the rest. Um, It tells us, John tells us there, verse 17, His disciples remembered what was written. Why did they remember? Well, they had that mental capacity. Sure. But also, if you look there in verse 22 again, when He had risen from the dead, His disciples remembered that He had said this to them. And they believed the Scripture and the Word which Jesus had said. And so I think this is the Word of the Holy Spirit. Jesus will teach this in the upper room in John chapter 16. He says that the Spirit will come and the Spirit will come to convict. Verse 8. And sometimes the Word of God stings a little. Sometimes it hurts. It's painful. Because you're confronted with your own personal need for alignment with it. That is a blessing of God. Let us not forget that. And so don't be discouraged when you read something in Scripture. Maybe you don't understand it right away. There is rear view mirror learning. Um, I look back and I see how ignorant I was and, and uh, you know, hopefully <laughs> I'm not as ignorant. But in the future, I'll look back to myself and this time and think I was ignorant of that. I didn't realize that. And so I keep growing through the ministry of God's Holy Spirit, how He works through His own Word. And then last, here's the big picture. Here's the big picture. Here's the temple. All of this blood, all of these sacrifices, a place to worship. God's people may only approach God through the sacrifices. The lesson is, there is one greater than the temple who is here. That's Christ Jesus. He is the temple. In 1 Corinthians 5-7, He is called the Passover. Christ is our Passover. Listen to what Malachi said in chapter 3. Malachi 3, it says in verse 1, Behold, this is God speaking, I send my messenger, that's John the Baptist, and he will prepare the way before me. 
God is saying, I'm coming, and there's going to be a messenger who comes before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. Even the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and a launderer's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. He will purify the sons of Levi and purge them as gold and silver that they may offer to the Lord an offering in righteousness. The only way that we may offer a righteous offering to God is through the great purifier, the Lord Jesus himself. All of these things were shadows and types, Hebrews 9.9 tells us. They pointed to him. And so these who question him, who demand a sign, they should have bowed down to him. But they resisted him. Again, the difference is the work of the Spirit. That's going to come in chapter 3. And so as we think about what Jesus does here, he comes as the Lamb of God. But he's also coming again. And he's the Lamb who wages war. In his wrath. Just read the book of Revelation. So the question is, will we receive him as the Lamb of God who takes away our sins? Or will we resist Him and face Him as the Lamb who wages war on those who do not believe in His gospel? So have you have you bowed your knee and confessed that Jesus is your Lord, the Lord of glory? Amen. Let us pray. Lord, we thank You for this passage of Scripture. Lord, we, we confess that uh, at times we, we feel the prick of your spirit, the prodding by your word, and we pray that you would help us, Lord, to be faithful to our Savior. Make us more like him. For your sake and your own glory, we pray. Amen.